So the reading is from Romans 1, and verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since, that may be no, since that, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Hello everyone, well thank you very much for your welcome and for the invitation for me to speak at these chapel services over the next few weeks. The plan while I'm with you, as you know, is to try to get to the heart of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And today we begin with Romans chapter 1. Well, most of us, I suspect, will not be unfamiliar with the question, what do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? Well, the book of Romans is a little bit like that. So the Apostle Paul has some good news to tell us, but before he can get around to telling us what it is exactly, he has to tell us some bad news first. What is that bad news, you say? Well, it is this. Our world is in a hell of a mess. That's what he's telling us in Romans chapter 1. So our world is in a hell of a mess, he says to first century Rome, faced with a declining empire. You bet it is, echoes modern man at the beginning of the 21st century. But why? That's the big question, isn't it? And Paul's diagnosis is the bad news that we would all rather not hear, but which we must hear if there's to be any chance at all of making sense of the good news that is to come. So why are our dreams of a better world always crumbling into disillusionment? Well, I'll tell you why, says the Apostle Paul. It is because God is angry with this world. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God, he says, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. You know, I don't suppose that there is anywhere in the biblical account of the nature and being of God that is more unpalatable than this. And enormous efforts have been expended to to save Christianity from the embarrassment of having to teach it. So you'll often hear people say something like, Oh, well, all that business about God being angry is, of course, Old Testament. It's primitive. It's sub-Christian. Which sounds very convincing, of course, until you read the Gospels and you discover there that of all the Bible writers and characters, it is Jesus himself who speaks most explicitly of the reality and the horror of hell. 
And then even, even more popular is that famous platitude, well, well, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And that too is a, a pretty reassuring way to soften the blow. And, until we realise that sin in the Bible is not something external to me. No, it's actually the wrong direction of the person I am. It's the corruption of my fallen human nature. See, there is no separate ego that I can carve out of myself and say, there, God loves that bit and hates this bit. That just isn't the way we are. See, when it comes to my human nature, sin is who I am. And that is why the Bible can speak without any embarrassment at all of us, each one of us individually, as potential enemies of God. For the only sort of God that the Bible knows is a a holy God of absolute purity and justice. And what is more, that is the only sort of God who is in any way credible in a world which is in such a mess as ours. I mean, in many ways, it would be very nice if I could stand up here today and and talk to you about God as a a kindly old fellow who wouldn't hurt a fly. And sadly, there are plenty who think that they are doing Christianity a service by portraying God in those terms. But in my experience, all such well-meaning and sentimental notions about God are utterly discredited in the minds of more honest and rigorous thinkers. By, for example, the persistence of suffering and and evil in the world. I mean, how can you believe in a God who is all love, they ask, when the universe is full of such misery? And of course they are right to ask such a question. I mean, only a dewy-eyed romantic would suggest that you could believe such a thing. And the Bible never asks you to believe it. For God is not only love. And those who suggest he is are propagating a, a half-truth, for, for God is also angry. And it is only on the basis of that divine wrath that it is possible to give a realistic account of the mess that our world is in. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me today. See, this doesn't mean that God's anger is a kind of irrational and uncontrolled temper, which ours so often is. No, his anger is what our anger ought to be. I mean, we don't admire someone who who smiles benignly when confronted with cruelty and injustice. No, there are times when we ought to be angry. Righteous anger, we call it. Well, Well, that's the sort of anger that God has. But it is a real anger nonetheless. And Romans 1 leaves us in no doubt about that. Because if you think about it, the only alternative to an angry God is a morally indifferent God who smiles upon Hitler and Mother Teresa with equal approval. But no such God will the Bible endorse. So you ask, why is the world in a hell of a mess? Well, this is the reason. Because it is on the wrong side of God. And God is making no secret of the fact that the evidence of his divine disapproval is all around us. So verse 18, notice what provokes this anger, he says. So godlessness, or ungodliness, verse 18, and also wickedness. 
So that's ungodliness, expressing our failure as religious beings, and wickedness, expressing our failure as moral beings. And the Apostle Paul says that there is no excuse for this moral failure within us. So no excuse for our ungodliness, because according to verse 20, men and women intuitively know enough about God's character from our observations of the created universe to to worship him. And then there's no excuse for our wickedness, he says, because according to verse 32, which is the last verse in our chapter, men and women know enough about God's standards from the prompting of our own consciences to obey him. So if we are in ignorance of God, it is a culpable ignorance. And if we are in disobedience to God, it is a criminal disobedience. And says the Apostle Paul, if men and women were but more honest, that is, if they were true to themselves at the deepest level of their human psyche, they would admit that they know this to be so. But look again at verse 18. So do you see what happens instead? See, men and women in their wickedness, he says, suppress the truth. And what the Apostle Paul means by that is that mankind has deliberately pushed the knowledge of God down below the level of his conscious mind because he wants to run away from its disturbing claims. But you can't run away from God like that. So, says Paul, mankind pays the price for this neurotic repression of the truth that he knows. So he pays a price in his intellectual life. So verse 21, his thinking becomes futile. Then he pays the price in his religious life, verse 23, as he exchanges the glory of God for images, for idols. And then perhaps most disturbing of all, he pays the price in his moral life. So so do you notice three times the most ominous phrase crops up later in this chapter? It's there in our verses in verse 24. It comes also in verse 26 and again in verse 28. God gave them up. So like a prisoner being handed over to execution, this is a word of judicial surrender. Now, we usually think of God's judgment, don't we, as something future, something we must expect at the end of the world, perhaps, or or after death. And we're not wrong in that. But the Apostle Paul is speaking here in chapter 1 about an anger which is present tense. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed, he says. In other words, the retributive consequence of mankind's rejection of God are present with us here and now. Indeed, he says, you want to know where they are? You want to know where they are? Well, look around you at the moral degeneracy of society. That's the evidence. See, this is a world which God has handed over to reap the appalling harvest of its godlessness and wickedness said it was bad news. Perhaps that was an understatement. See, here is the Apostle Paul opening the greatest exposition of the Christian message ever, and he does so in terms of abject despair. See, this is a world without excuse, under the judgment of an angry God, and in mortal peril of being quite literally God-forsaken. Oh, perhaps we spoke better than we knew when we said the world was in a hell of a mess. And yet I say again, this is where we must begin because unless we understand how bad the bad news is, 
we are never, never, never going to make sense of the good news that we will come to more fully in a few weeks' time. Think of it this way. So imagine a boy and a girl walking along beside a riverbank. The boy says to the girl, I love you. I love you so much I'm going to plunge into this river and drown for you. Now think about it. Will she make sense of that as she sees him disappearing into a pool of bubbles? I mean, is she going to be comforted by the knowledge that he loved her and drowned for her? No, of course she isn't. And no more will you or I make sense of Jesus when he stands before us and says, I love you and I've died for you. You will never make sense of that. You won't make the connection or see the logic between his love and his dying. Not so long as you think of yourself as walking along the riverbank, safe and sound, with God smiling at you. But change the story a little bit and it might make better sense. The girl has fallen into the water, she's drowning, she's perishing. Now the boy says, I love her, I'm going to dive in, I'll risk my life to save her. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? You can all understand that. See, now she's not going to be in any doubt about how the love and the dying, if that's how it turns out, are connected. Of course judgment is real. Indeed, it is precisely because judgment is real that we need rescue. And the love of God does not obliterate that judgment. No, it actually steps into all of our pain and anger to rescue us from it. So do you see what I mean when I say that you will never understand the good news if you don't understand the bad news? For the very word salvation is meaningless unless there is something you need to be saved from. Think about it. What is your biggest problem this lunchtime? A problem waiting for you back at your office? Is it to do with your home life perhaps? Could it be your health or the health of a loved one? Maybe you can't quite put your finger on exactly what it is, but nevertheless, things seem to be falling apart all around you. Whatever it is, I I do sympathise with you. It is a sorry old world in which we live, isn't it? But I tell you, the biggest problem of our fallen humanity is our helplessness (laughs) under the judgement of an angry God. And if you could only see the world as God sees it, you would have no doubt about that, whatever problems are pressing in upon your mind right now. For what is true of human society as a whole is true in the microcosm of everyday life. See, the world is in a mess because our lives individually are in a mess. And for the same reason, we have neglected our knowledge of God. Or you may pretend to yourself that you're an atheist, but I suggest that the Apostle Paul is right when he says that you're pulling the wool over your eyes about that. For at the deepest level of our humanity, we know that we are accountable. So when we finally meet God in judgment, it will come as no surprise to any of us. Or you may call me a cynic, but from my experience of people up and down the country, I have to tell you that at the end of the day, the main reason why men and women don't ultimately respond to Christ, actually, has very little to do with intellectual doubt, 
but because they want to live as they please. And they don't like the idea of feeling obliged to submit their lives to God's will and to God's way. See, they do not like the idea of a moralising deity invading their freedom. So like a Frank Sinatra, they want to do things their way. And I would be very surprised if indeed, in actual fact, things here in Parliament were any different. I mean, people demand, don't they? How could a good God allow all this suffering and evil in the world? But you see, Romans 1 is actually throwing that question right back in our faces. See, the real question is, how can a good God allow you and I in this world, it says? I mean, how could he go on tolerating, as good as he is, when he is patient with us, we ignore him, and when he visits judgments upon us, we are prone to accuse him of injustice? No, the really difficult question is not why is there so much suffering in the world, but why God, this just and holy God who stands behind this world, has not consigned our rebellious human nature to oblivion years ago. Oh, you say, I'm trying to frighten you into becoming a Christian. Yes, I'll say that I am. I'll say that I am. I mean, would you rather I mouth pointless platitudes at you? Would you rather I I just wore a, a big badge saying God loves you? Look, actually, the remarkable thing is that God amazingly will accept us even when we come to him as nothing better than frightened people clutching at straws. I mean, it's hardly complimentary, is it, to treat God as nothing more than an alternative to hell? And yet our glorious, gracious, merciful God is willing to receive us on the basis of a repentance prompted by no higher motive than that. Indeed, he offers his son on the cross for selfish rebels like you and me who would never run to him at all if the flames of hell weren't scorching our backsides. Yes, I'll frighten you into becoming a Christian if it will wake you up to the reality of your current predicament, for you would rather I spoke the truth, I'm sure, than simply mouthing platitudes about God being only love to you. For it simply isn't true. See, Christianity is a rescue religion, for it tells us that men and women need to be saved. Saved from what? Dangerous and unstable superpowers? The threat of terrorism, perhaps? Social deprivation and poverty, the credit crunch maybe, the decline in moral standards, a feeling of helplessness and despair. Oh, no doubt we need to be saved from many things, but according to Romans 1, what we need to be saved from most of all is the anger of a just and holy God against an ungodly and wicked world. So I have to tell you frankly this lunchtime, if you are not a Christian here today, then you are not to imagine that God is simply smiling benignly at you. Oh, he may be weeping for you. He may well be frowning at you. He is most certainly reaching out in love to you. But the one thing he is certainly not doing is smiling benignly at you. For Jesus himself said that heaven doesn't start to smile until sinners repent. I say again, Christianity is a rescue religion. And so in the person of Jesus, God himself has stepped down into this world and like a rescuer, reaching out to a drowning man, he offers you his hand 
a hand to rescue you from the consequence of all our ungodliness and wickedness, both towards him and towards one another. A hand to rescue us. No, not to contradict God's anger or to annul it or to cancel it, but a hand to deliver us from it by taking the sting of that anger into his very self on the cross. He offers us his hand this lunchtime. That's the good news. Why don't you grasp it? You can do it today. Just get hold of any of the chaplaincy staff after the service. They'll be happy to tell you how. See, God doesn't really send people to hell. They go there of their own free choice. They say, leave me alone. I don't need Jesus. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And if we say it long enough, ultimately, God will give us what we want. He he will leave us alone under his judgment and anger forever. But what Romans 1 is trying to get across today is this. See, though the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, there is something that is even more terrible, and that is falling out of those hands. A moment of quiet to talk to God in our hearts before our final hymn. Our Father God, Forgive us that we are so often guilty of demeaning your own divine dignity by our own sentimental notions of you. Give us grace today, we pray, to, to, so to understand your word and to, to digest its significance for us, that we might in humility approach your throne of grace and on the basis of the death of the Lord Jesus declare from the bottom of our hearts, Father, Forgive me. Come into my heart to transform me and to be my Saviour and Lord. For Jesus' sake.